everyone else, if you would, grab your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 7. We will be in Acts, chapter 7, verse 44 through 53 today. This has been an amazing past couple weeks of hearing the words of Stephen, and it's always an interesting, and as I mentioned at the beginning of this kind of three-part sermon series, uh, there's a particular challenge that is involved in taking a sermon preached by someone in the scriptures and try and then preach them preaching that sermon. Uh, I think it's a little bit of a difficult thing, but hopefully you have found uh, this sermon by Stephen and taking it the way we have over the past few weeks. Uh, Hopefully we've been able to see clearly, effectively what it is that Stephen is preaching here to the Jews, what it is that he's preaching against, what the message is that he is proclaiming to these men, these, uh, this Jewish tribunal, and hopefully, as we conclude today, we can bring all these things to a head and benefit from his sermon uh, today as we see it in Acts chapter 7. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 7, verses 44 through 53. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Be with us, guide us, and direct us today as we study your word. Pray that the words and warnings that Stephen gives to his hearers here in Acts chapter 7 would ring just as useful, just as important, and just as powerfully for us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to um, risk making a fool of myself this morning as I start off by talking about a golf analogy. And now to be clear, this is ball golf I'm talking about, not disc golf. Uh, And I'm not much of a golfer, and so do not take these words that I'm about to say as some sort of uh, insight or clinic to be gleaned from as far as how to swing a golf club. But to the best that I understand it, a golf swing involves at least three major steps. If you were to break down uh, any professional golf swing uh, and see it, watch it in slow motion, you would notice that it has at least... Uh, three major parts to it. It has the backswing, the hit or the contact, and the follow-through. These are the parts of a golf swing that 
without any one of these parts, you're not going to do very well. You're not going to hit the ball very well. Uh, you're going to make very little progress in the game of golf. And while I, I think there's, there's always going to be limitations, I do think that there is some value today in looking at this speech that Stephen is giving, this sermon that he is preaching to the Jews and breaking it down in a similar way. Because really, there are three points, three parts, three portions to both Stephen's sermon here in Acts, but also, I would argue, almost every effective sermon has these three major parts. And that is effectively a backswing, a buildup, a, a growing of an argument, a hit, or a, a point of making the point, the main idea, and then a follow-through or an application of the sermon. And we can see these parts on display in Stephen's speech. Really, so far, what we've seen as we look throughout this whole chapter in this, this very long speech, this is a speech that takes up almost the whole chapter of chapter 7 in the book of Acts. And for the majority thus far, everything that we've seen over the past couple weeks, we have been watching the backswing. We've been seeing Stephen building this argument, drawing back the club, preparing for the next step in the motion for literally over 40 verses. This is what Stephen has, has been doing. He has been building his argument. He's been putting his backswing into motion, preparing to drive home his main point to the Jews, a main point that we've looked at actually every single week thus far. So we begin today by looking at what, what I'm calling the backswing, the backswing of Stephen's sermon. And that's what we see even further in verses 44 through verse 50. What we see in these passages, these verses, is Stephen continuing to discuss a theme that he's already been talking about for most of the sermon. And that is the theme of the temple, of God's presence, of God's dwelling with his people in this way. He's continuing on this conversation, this story, and largely it is centered around throughout the whole of this message around the temple. Because that was one of the main accusations brought against him, wasn't it? That he had blasphemed the temple. And he had blasphemed the temple by restating what Christ himself had said, that he was going to destroy the temple and then in three days rebuild it. And so it makes sense that he would then take this theme of the temple and begin to expound upon it from Israel's history from the Old Testament. And that's exactly what he's doing here in our text. And he's done it. He's been making his way through really the high points of Israel's history. You recall that he started with Abraham. And he spoke about Abraham and then about Joseph, who was then put into the land of Egypt. He then moved on to talk about Moses. And he spent some time speaking about Moses and, and the, the exodus of God's people out of Egypt. But you might recognize that there's one more extremely important high point of Israel's history that he has yet to touch on, but that he's going to talk about today. He's been hitting the high points so far, but the one point that he hasn't mentioned yet has now come, and that is the reign of David. For the Jews, the time of King David was for them the high point of their history. They look back on those years as the supreme apex, the pinnacle of Israel's history. 
when they had been brought out of Egypt and into the promised land and were now dwelling in God's land that he had promised Abraham so many years ago. And they were a united kingdom still at this point. They were not divided into a northern and a southern kingdom, but were one and were one under this great king that God had placed over them, King David. He now comes to this point in their history. And as he is doing so, what he's doing is he begins to trace the history of the tabernacle and the temple. And he starts with the fact that it was instituted by God in the wilderness. He says in verse 44, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. The first thing to note about this this tabernacle, which as we know was sort of the forerunner to the temple, that the tabernacle was what became the the form that the temple then mimicked and, and replicated when it was ultimately built. But it begins as the Lord institutes and declares and even lays out for Moses how to construct the tabernacle. Well, one of the first things to note about the tabernacle, and it might seem passing and fleeting to us, but it's relevant to the discussion on the temple and the presence of God that Stephen is making. And that is the fact that what was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was a tent, wasn't it? He even says in verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness. What is the whole purpose of a tent? Why is it that we camp in tents rather than in sheds or in cabins or buildings when we go out backpacking into the woods? It's because they're portable, right? Tents are intended to be portable. And so the point Stephen has just now kind of directed us to and pointed us to is that this holy place, this sacred space that the Jews held so dearly, that being the temple, and that especially being the temple located in Jerusalem. After all, that's where the temple must be. The presence of God was to be found originally was portable. It was a physical representation of the fact that the Lord was not confined to one singular sacred space. Not only that, when David, Israel's greatest king, remember, this was, he was representative of the high point of Israel's history. David, Israel's greatest king, a man after God's own heart, desired to build the temple for the Lord. And what was his answer? The Lord prevented him from doing it. He told him, no, for you are a man of war. And therefore, God prevented, stopped David from building the temple. But rather, it was granted to Solomon to build. But even at this point, Stephen comes out as clearly as he possibly can and begins to really get at the whole issue of the temple that he was trying to break down in the minds of the Jews. And he says it here in the text when he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. He's stating it as clearly as he possibly can. You people, you Jews, have ascribed so much value, so much importance to this building, this place, as though God is found in here and here alone. And Stephen now comes and tells them, look, the Most High does not 
dwell in houses made by men. This is an amazing statement that he here makes to the Jews. But here's the greatest thing about it. He doesn't just make the statement on his own accord. He makes it from Scripture. He makes clear to them that the temple should not be thought of as a sacred space. Stephen here was accusing them of the very thing that they accused him of, and that was blasphemy. Remember, they accused him of blasphemy for speaking against the temple. But all that he did was quote what Jesus himself said, saying that the temple was going to be destroyed. Now, if you recall, when Jesus said those words, what was he actually talking about? He was talking about himself, right? His body, the true temple, the true presence of God among men. But even still, thinking about the temple as a building, as a place, for that place, that building to be torn down, does not then equal that God has no place to, to dwell, that God is no longer here because his house was destroyed. And to say that it is, even if they didn't say it explicitly, to behave as though it was, the way these Jews, as their history had kind of formed around the, the place of the temple, they treated it as though it was the very presence of God, to the point that if it were destroyed, then a person had blasphemed God. And that in and of itself is a blasphemy. It is a blasphemy against God because it grossly misunderstands and misrepresents who he is and his nature. It is a gross misrepresentation of this doctrine that we call the transcendence and eminence of God. That is, he is transcendent, he is above all things, he is over all things, he is holy and set apart. And yet what we also know to be true as God has revealed himself is that he is with us. He is among us. And this is a gross misrepresentation of that to the point that Stephen calls it out as blasphemy. The point that he's making here is that the tabernacle and the temple are not the sole dwelling place of God. Is God to be found in those places? Certainly. Is God limited to those places? Certainly not. God indeed is with his people wherever they are. If you haven't picked anything else up over the past few weeks, hopefully you've at least picked that up. That Stephen is desperate to drive this point home and to clarify a proper teaching on the temple that is removed, from all, that is removed of all blasphemy and idolatry as the people have filled it. He's making the point clearly. When Abraham was in Haran, God was with him. Temple or no temple. When Joseph was in the house of Potiphar, and even when he was in prison, what does the text say about him? That God was with him. When the people were in Egypt, God was with them. And when they wandered in the wilderness, God was with them then as well. No matter where the people of God are, God is with them. Temple or no temple. Tabernacle or no tabernacle. Where the people of God are, God is. It's why it's such an encouragement to sing the song that we sang today, Oh God, you never leave my side. Because oftentimes we feel that way, don't we? In the shadow, Oh God, you're near. In my longing, Oh God, 
you're near. In the darkness, in all of the times of my life when it seems that you are distant from me, you are near. This is a beautiful truth that we dare not distort and and falsely think that God is found only in sacred spaces. God is with his people. The point of this section is summarized well by John Stott when he wrote about this portion of scripture and he says this, quote, a single thread runs through the first part of his defense. It is that the God of Israel is a pilgrim God who is not restricted to any one place. He has pledged himself by a solemn covenant to be their God. Therefore, according to his covenant promises, wherever they are, he is there also. This is the covenant God that the people serve, the true people of God. The temple was not the sole dwelling place of God, nor was the presence of God confined there. And in fact, Solomon himself, the one who built the temple, knew this to be the case. Even as he built the temple, here's what he says, as quoted in 1 Kings 8.27. Solomon says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Even Solomon himself, the one who built the temple, had a proper understanding of the temple. If they had simply read the builder of this temple, they would have known. But ultimately, the prophet Isaiah says it even more pointedly and completely, as Stephen quotes it here in 49 and 50 of Acts 7. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? The point is the folly of the idea that God necessarily needs a place built for him so that he might dwell there. God's home is not to be found in the temple or in the tabernacle. For heaven is his throne and the earth his footstool. Solomon understood this. He understood the foolishness of thinking that this temple was now somehow allowing God to live with his people. And with this, the utter foolishness of their position, that is the position of these Jews, became clear. This is the point in the sermon now where the backswing was complete. The club has been raised to its, its maximum point, And Stephen is now going to begin the downswing towards contact. He now moves into, this is point number two, the hit, where he makes direct contact with his main idea. At this point, the evidence is there. The case has been made throughout Stephen's speech. Now it's time to make contact with his target and to drive home the main point that he's getting at. In verse 51 through 54, we see his point. We've already read it last two weeks. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen here has now come to the point The ball has been struck and it has been hit 
hard. You can't read this portion of scripture and not kind of go, wow, Stephen, that was, he doesn't pull any punches, does he? He doesn't hold anything back. And this is typical of the kind of preaching we see in Acts, isn't it? Never in Acts do we see punches pulled, do we see feelings uh, 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 concerned, but we see truth spoken each and every time the gospel is preached. And in this moment, Stephen really puts forward six indictments, six, six accusations against the people. And so we're going to take those and look at them one by one and just really see how it is that these things hit home, what the point is that he's making with each one of these he first of all calls them a stiff-necked people. Now, if you're in here today and, and you deal with muscle pain or aches, you might think, well, I'm a stiff-necked person. I mean, I woke up this morning and my neck was stiff, right? But that's not the point that, that Stephen is getting at here, is it? The idea of being stiff-necked, a stiff-necked people, comes from the idea of an oxen or some sort of animal being yoked. And that there are some animals that are very opposed to being yoked and they are not easily turned from one direction to the other but are stiff-necked are stubborn are difficult impossible to be directed impossible to lead here today we might say you're as stubborn as a mule right because mules are notorious for this kind of stubbornness a stubbornness that when that mule decides he's going to sit there and not go anywhere you are going to be hard-pressed to make that mule go anywhere this is what he is saying now about the people, that you are stubborn in your ways, that you are immovable. He goes on to say, you are uncircumcised in heart and ears. This is a very, very serious insult to the Jews, to any Jewish man. To be told that you are uncircumcised was just about the worst kind of insult that you could make. Think about the story of David and Goliath. If you recall in that story, when David comes and he meets Goliath on the battlefield, and even ahead of time when he's just talking about Goliath, and they begin this, this moment of trash talk. I love the trash talk in the Bible. This is one of the few moments where you get to see kind of some, some, some godly trash talk from God's people. And David comes to the battlefield against Goliath, and what does Goliath say? He says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks, right? Kind of, kind of criticizing or making fun of David's size his stature because he was indeed a young man and do you remember david's response he says you uncircumcised philistine i'm going to feed your body to the birds of the air you see the idea of being uncircumcised was the idea of being cut off from the people of god cut off from the blessings of god that to say someone was uncircumcised was to say you're a bad jew you don't even deserve the title of Jew. You are uncircumcised. There was no greater insult hardly in this time than to call a person uncircumcised. And yet here now, Stephen uses this insult against the Jews here. But Stephen is not concerned with the physical circumcision of these men. He is not seeking to, to make some sort of ethnic slur against them. But what does he say? He says, you are uncircumcised in heart and ears. Uncircumcision of the heart is really the main point that he's getting at. What is uncircumcision of the heart? What is circumcision of the heart? 
in the Old Testament, it's a phrase that we see come up every now and then. And it's a phrase that is the Old Testament parallel to what we see in the New Testament that we call new birth, conversion, regeneration. That is the heart change that takes place in a person when the Lord removes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. What Stephen is really telling them is, you might be a Jew physically, but that is all. You are not a true Jew. You are not a Jew of heart and ear. This is a theme that Paul's going to pick up later on in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, when he speaks about what it means to be true Israel. Paul says in Romans 9, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. He's picking up on this same theme that Stephen is now putting forward. That you can be circumcised physically all you want, but it means nothing apart from circumcision of the heart. That the people of God are not those who are, who are circumcised outwardly only, but those who are Jewish, those who are the people of God, circumcised both outwardly and inwardly represents true Judaism. Circumcision of the heart is what matters. It's what matters so much to the point that in Galatians, Paul's going to argue against the circumcision party to say circumcision now counts for nothing. Whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised does not matter. What matters is your faith. Circumcision of the heart. The next thing he says against them is that you resist the Holy Spirit. A fact that as we read the story here in Acts, we cannot easily argue against. Every time we see the Spirit moving, people being healed, people being saved, people coming to faith in Christ and the kingdom of God growing, every step of the way we see these Jews hating it trying to stomp it out, trying to get rid of it, resisting the Holy Spirit. And then Stephen says this. He begins to get real personal. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He now begins talking about their fathers, their forefathers, the, one who, the ones who in the stories that he was just telling are seen and represented. One of the most upsetting parts of this particular accusation for the Jews is that Stephen identifies them not with the prophets, not with Abraham, not with Moses, not with Joseph, but with the people who were, our, who were and are opposed to God's chosen people. He identifies them with those who reject and persecute the one God chose to speak and lead all throughout Israel's history. Particularly, a Jew's identity with Abraham was of great importance to them. They were always bragging and going on about Abraham as their father. And yet what we see now in the story is Abraham has been brought up. Stephen mentions Abraham, but in this story, he says, you are like your fathers, not Abraham, but the ones who rejected God's people. 
And this again is much like what Christ did to the Jews in John chapter 8, verse 39 and 40. When Jesus is having this discussion with the Jewish leaders, and as we recall from the story, they're getting angrier and angrier and angrier, and at the end of all this, pick up stones in order to stone him, mostly for his claim to be God, right? But in John, 30, in John 8, 39 through 40, this is what they say. They answer him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Jesus told them outright that they were not truly sons of Abraham, as much as they might think they are, as much as they might desire to be, for they were not doing what Abraham did. They did not cling to the promises of God like Abraham did. You recall from, from earlier, a couple weeks ago, when we spoke of Abraham, and we recalled and we remembered that Abraham never saw the promises God gave him fulfilled, did he? He saw a glimpse of it when his son was born, when Isaac was born. But the promises of having a land, having a blessing, Abraham never saw those things fulfilled. And yet, Abraham was righteous and he trusted in Christ to the point that later on in John chapter 8, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And we might think, wait a second. Abraham didn't see your day, Jesus. Abraham died long ago. He never got to see you come. Why is it that Jesus could speak of Abraham seeing this day and rejoicing to see this day? Because for Abraham, belief and trust and faith in the promises of God was just as good as if he got to see them come true. They were just as sure for Abraham who trusted in the promises by faith as those who got to see Jesus come in person. Because when God gives a promise, when he declares it by an oath and makes a covenant with his people, he is good on his word. You can speak of those promises as though they've already happened. That's how sure the covenant and promises of God are. But these Jews did not cling to the promises of God the way Abraham did. Rather, they clung to the rituals, to the rites, to the trappings of Judaism as though they were the fulfillment of the promise. And the point that Stephen is making is emphasized by the fact that he brought Abraham into the conversation, but it was not Abraham who he refers to when he says, as your fathers did, so do you. Like their fathers before them who rejected and persecuted the prophets, so too the Jews in Jesus' day walked step and step in their footsteps. They too rejected the word of God just as the people did then, who rejected the prophets, who rejected God's chosen one. And ultimately, as Stephen again directs their attention to, they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Stephen tells them that they have fulfilled the parable that Jesus spoke in, back in, uh, excuse me, in uh, Luke chapter 12, no, excuse me, back in Matthew and in Luke and in 
Mark. It's called the parable of the wicked tenants. If you look in your Bibles and, and look at the top of that parable, and if you recall the parable of the wicked tenants, what exactly happens in that story? He tells the parable of one who, who owns and, and plants a vineyard. He builds it all out. He plants all the, all the vines. He prepares everything as it needs to be, and then he leaves to go to another country. But he leaves tenants in charge of the vineyard. And after some time had passed and it was time for the fruit to be gathered to, to reap the benefits of the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard sends servants back. And in the story, you recall what happens. The first servants are beaten. They are broken and sent back. Eventually, the servants that he sends are killed by the wicked tenants who are now refusing to give him what is due. And then the owner of the property, what does he do? He says, I will send my son. Surely they will listen to him. And so he sends his son to go to these tenants, the keepers of this vineyard. And what happens? They see the son of the heir approaching and say, look, here comes the heir to this vineyard. Let us kill him and take it for ourselves, his inheritance. And at the end of this parable, there's this this kind of almost funny moment where Jesus asks them, what should be done with these wicked tenants? And what is it that the Jews reply? They say he should put these miserable wretches to a terrible end for their wickedness, for their treachery, for, for murdering and beating the servants that he sent, and then ultimately for murdering his son, the owner of this vineyard. And then all of a sudden, Jesus turns the table on him, doesn't he? And makes it clear, I'm talking about you. And they understood, loud and clear. Stephen is now telling them, you have fulfilled that parable. You have killed and betrayed and murdered God's righteous one, whom he sent to his people. You have rejected and murdered and then in verse 53, he concludes his indictment by saying, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What's the significance of the fact that they were the ones who received the law? What is the significance? After all, disobedience, rejection of the Messiah is rejection of the Messiah, no matter who you are, right? Sin is sin, certainly. Rejection of God leads to eternal punishment, certainly. But I think the reason that he brings the point in was, was twofold to talk about the law. A, you recall that there was, there was another portion that they accused him of blaspheming, right? That, that he spoke against the temple and he spoke against Moses and the law. And he's now saying, actually, you are the ones who have rejected the law, who have not kept the law, because the law pointed to the Messiah, whom you have now rejected. But I think additionally to that, the reason to bring up the law is to say that because they were the ones who received the law, they were more culpable. Their guilt was more severe because they had been given the word of God. They had been given the prophets. They had been given the law. And yet, even with this special privilege, even with this knowledge that they were given, they ultimately rejected the Messiah. This is the principle that Jesus spoke about in Luke chapter 12, verse 42 through 48. 
where he tells another parable. And he says, And the Lord said, Who then is faithful and wise manager, who his master will set over the whole household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? He says, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male servants and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And then listen to what he says. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You see, the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, were given the great privilege of receiving the word of God through the law, through the prophets, and then ultimately the Messiah himself came to the Jews. And all of these things, because of their rejection of them, because of their despising of them, and ultimately, ultimately their murder of Christ, served to heap guilt upon them all the more. It served to intensify their guilt. This portion, as he has now made these accusations against them, one by one, hitting point after point after point of their sin, exposing their guilt, represents the culmination of the argument that Stephen has been building this whole time, an indictment of the Jews and exposing of their guilt. Their guilt for idolatry and blasphemy from the way that they had, had overemphasized the temple. Their their refusal to actually heed and obey the law that they had been given. And you notice, even just by reading the text, you can see that there has been a, a reversal of roles between Stephen and the Jews. Because I want, I want us to hearken back real quick, all the way back to the beginning of this chapter, even going back into the end of last chapter. Why is it that Stephen is here in this scene? In what context is he giving this speech? He is standing before the Jewish council being accused of these crimes, right? Being accused of blasphemy, of speaking against Moses, of speaking against the temple. But we come now to this point, after reading over 50 verses of Stephen's speech, and you've probably kind of forgotten that Stephen is the one on trial here. We read the way Stephen is preaching to these men and we say, these men are the ones that are on trial here. Their guilt has been exposed. Stephen has absolutely turned and, and changed the role here to where he has gone from the one being accused to the one who is accusing on account of God and the covenant that they have rejected and broken. And we bring now, that brings us now to the final portion of the, the golf swing that is this sermon, and that is the follow-through. He's made contact. He has hit home. He has driven home the point that he intended to make. And now in the case of Stephen, his sermon, the follow-through is ultimately cut short, isn't it? 
We look at the sermon, we go, okay, we're ready for the follow-through. We've seen the hit. You've hit the ball. Now let's look at the follow-through, see what it looks like. But the speech is over, isn't it? There is no more to look at. There is no more to read of this speech. In fact, he was silenced. And we know what comes next. It is not the great altar call that we might hope it would be or that Peter received in Acts chapter 2. Rather, what we see comes in verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. And then they killed him. Their own blasphemy had now been called out, had been exposed, and they did not like it. And we shouldn't be surprised at this response. In fact, I would argue that the response of the Jews to the speech, the sermon of Stephen, is a common response when people hear the gospel proclaimed. It is a common response when people have their own guilt, their own sin brought into the light and exposed, and they're told of the condemnation that they are due for that sin. No one likes having their guilt exposed, their sin brought into the light. And for many people in the world, at that moment when that happens, they're going to respond very similarly to the way these people did. They're going to harden their hearts. They're going to plug their ears. They're going to say, I don't want anything more to do with it. And they're probably even going to hate you for it. This is a common response to the gospel. We might wish every time we preach the gospel, proclaim the good news, evangelize to those around us, that we see the Acts 2 results. Thousands upon thousands coming to faith. But this is actually the reality that oftentimes is the case when we proclaim the gospel. But we've mentioned it before. There is hope to be found even in this. Stephen's follow through was cut off, but that doesn't mean that there was no follow through. After Stephen's death, the Holy Spirit said, don't worry, Stephen, I'll finish the swing. And what happens? The church continues to grow. Not only does the church continue to grow, but as we're going to see shortly, one who was there and present and approving of the murder of Stephen comes to faith in Christ. Not only does he come to faith in Christ, we now look at much of what he wrote and consider it to be inspired word of God. The Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, stands at this murder that we're about to witness in coming weeks. And we might think, man, what a hard-hearted man who hears this sermon preached, sees and approves of his murder, and then goes out even further onto a rampage to ravage the church and to murder God's people. Ultimately, starting with this sermon, we will see the Holy Spirit do the work of taking this wretched sinner and turning him into one of the greatest apostles of all time. There's grace to be found even when we feel like our sermons, our evangelism, our gospel sharing falls flat. It never does. We seek, and I, I seek as I preach every single week, to have a follow-through, to, to give a point of application, to call people to repentance, to encourage you with the gospel. But church family, ultimately, whatever follow-through is going to take place in your heart, it's going to be accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit. Not by me, not by my efforts. Those Stevens, through Stevens, follow through might have been cut short 
Let's not miss the next thing that we should recognize today. Consider what he had just accused the Jews of, right? He had accused them of idolatry and the way that they had treated the temple, blaspheming God. Worst of all, he accused them of rejecting God by rejecting his Christ. And the Jews were guilty of all these things. But the guilt is made all the more serious by the fact that they had been given the word of God through the law. They'd been given the word of God through the prophets. They had seen the word of God manifest in the person of Jesus. But what did they do with all these things? They abused them and they rejected them. And for this, their guilt was heaped up all the more. John chapter 1 in his prologue says, John 1, 9 through 10, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This is a sad and damning place to be after having received the knowledge of God and the word of God now to be sitting here rejecting it, pushing it aside, closing our ears. And this is the place where many people sit in church pews even today. Like these Jews, there are people sitting in churches today hearing the word of God proclaimed as they have each and every week, some of them for years, and yet they are hardening their hearts to the truth of the gospel and rejecting the Messiah. And I would encourage each and every one of us in here today, if you're here in this place today and that is you, just know that the more you reject the truth and the word of God as it's proclaimed, the more you heap guilt upon yourself. Because the word of God is not neutral. No one hears the word of God proclaimed and it has no effect on their life. They might think it does, but it doesn't. There was one famous preacher who said it this way. He says, every sermon that you hear either moves you one step closer to heaven or one step closer to hell. Every time you hear the word of God proclaimed and reject it, you heap guilt upon yourself. But when we hear the truth of God, the word of God, the gospel proclaimed, and we receive it the way God has called us to, then we receive life and hope and joy all of which overflow out of the person and work of Christ as God's plan of redemption is applied to us who trust in him by faith. That's the other side of the coin in John 1. We read John 1, 9 through 11 that spoke of the, the rejection, the people who, who did not receive him. But then in verse 12, he goes on to say this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, your heritage serves you nothing. Your circumcision serves you nothing. As it relates to your eternal security, your destination, your justification before God, it comes solely through Jesus Christ, 
the true light, which gives light to everyone who has come into the world. All who receive him and believe in his name have the right to become the children of God. These are really our only two options for all humanity. We either accept the word of God and accept his Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh, or you reject him. There is no middle ground. The gospel is not neutral, and we cannot be neutral on this. God is calling and creating for himself a people, a church. And only those who trust in Christ for their salvation are a part of these people, are a part of his church. And for the rest, guilt and wrath is theirs. Turn from your sin today. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. The guilt that has been heaped upon you, and maybe there's more every time you've heard the gospel, all of it can be removed. Every single bit of it. Just like the Apostle Paul, who at one time was, was, was standing over and even holding the coats of those who murdered Stephen, and ultimately he who persecuted God's church, his guilt was great. For he says himself, I was Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law, knew it well. All of his guilt, all that he deserved, all of the wrath that was rightfully his was taken by Christ. And he can take your wrath too. He can take your guilt too. If you just trust in him by faith. Let's pray.